0: This week, Rev. Wendy talks about how our moving towards consciousness is not just about compassion for others, but needs to include compassion for ourselves. Rev. Wendy also presents examples of ways we can unhook from our old patterns. In some ways, it feels like it's been a very fast eight weeks. We are concluding a series of messages that has basically been an exploration into the idea of spiritual awakening. What is it? What are the things that facilitate it? And what are the things that we need to look out for that maybe stand in the way? We've used, in part, as a basis for this series, a book written by American Tibetan Buddhist Nun. Her name is Pema Chodron. And the name of the book is The Places That Scare You. And today, I want to talk to you about the idea, as it is spoken about in Buddhism, the idea of heightened neuroses. You can laugh at that. Heightened neuroses. Or as it is actually referred to in unity, it is called chemicalization. And we'll get into that in in just a couple of minutes here. My message title is unhooking. And in a way, if you only leave with that word in your mind, if that's the thing that you hold on to and remember, it may very well be enough to carry with you the general concept of what I want to talk about today. So say the word with me. Unhooking. Unhooking fits very well with the song that you just sang, Shana, on I Will Find My Way Back unwounded. So this journey that we are on in our desire to be more awake, more aware spiritually, to, to, to become enlightened, if you will, is a journey that is an ongoing journey. And I want to begin by posing an interesting question to you. Do you think that enlightenment, that enlightenment means the end of all neuroses, do you think that to be aware and awake means that you have eliminated all human hang-ups? Yes or no? Yes. Oh good, I hear some yeses, a few yeses. I'm going with the noes. <laughs> no it does not mean that we have eliminated all that but i'll drill down into what it really and truly does mean awakening does not mean that we achieve once and for all a perfectly a perfect state of compassion. It does not mean that we become infinitely generous in every possible situation. It does not mean that we are always perfectly patient, kind, and understanding, and wonderfully peaceful at all times. Becoming more aware, becoming kind and compassionate, actually is an experience that arises naturally As we witness, as we witness the chaos and the pain and the suffering and the difficulty in others, because in doing so, we help to see that in ourselves as well and be able to touch that and understand that in ourselves as well. It is critically important that we understand that our humanness does not simply dissolve when we become more awake. I really want you to hold that. Our humanness does not simply go away when we become more aware and more awake. We will continue to feel things. We will continue to feel and in many ways, in a heightened way, our experiences, our thoughts, our feelings. They do not go away because we become more aware. They do not go away because we become more conscious. But what we will find is that everything that we are experiencing is just that. It is an experience. It is not the totality of us. And that is critically important. What it means is we will be able to experience and name and touch and know what the feeling is, what the experience is, without being so singularly identified with it that we forget the totality, the spaciousness of what we truly are. It is the pathway and the means by which we are able to move with and live through our life experience and be with whatever it is that arises, knowing that we are not it, but it is something that we are experiencing. And that is critically important for us to understand. Sometimes when we get into a deeper approach to spiritual life and spiritual living, we can misunderstand an awful lot. And one of the things we can misunderstand is we can walk away with the the feeling that, oh, when I am really finally awakened, when I am enlightened, when I am spiritually aware, nothing is ever going to bother me again. (laughs) Well, guess what? That's not quite the way it is. Let me share a story with you that paints such a beautiful picture of this. There was a young man who had been studying with an enlightened meditation teacher for quite some time, and he was sitting at the feet of this enlightened meditation master when the teacher had just been given, had just had whispered in his ear the very sad news that his son, had died, and the meditation master's face changed and the tears just streamed endlessly down his face. And his student saw this and was aghast. His student wondered, how could it be that this luminous, enlightened being could experience such human sadness and cry? He was enlightened, and he asked his meditation teacher, why are you crying? And his meditation teacher simply said, because my son has just died. To awaken spiritually does not mean that we become less human, but it means that we understand our humanness in a very different way than most people do. It means that we understand our humanness as a backdrop, as something that is much smaller and impermanent than what we truly and really are. We do not become less human, but we do become more spiritually awake. Not less human, but more spiritually awake. The, teacher and abbot of a monastery in southern Thailand by the name of Ajan Po makes this point. He says, whatever arises, whatever arises, whether fear, hate, or any other feeling, you see it as just that. You see it as just that. No need to identify it as my fear or my anger, then it can come and go without disturbing your mind." I want to repeat those words because I think in it is such an important concept. Whatever arises, whether fear, hate, or any other feeling, you can see it as just that. No need to identify it as my fear or my anger. Then it can come and go without disturbing your mind. It's the ability when you notice, I feel angry right now. I feel sad. I feel upset. I'm afraid. That instead of singularly identifying yourself with it, you don't ignore it. You are able to touch it. You are able to name it. Fear arising, sadness arising, anger arising. Being able to see it and touch it and name it is very different than singularly, pointedly identifying it, identifying with it. Can you feel the difference there? This is what it means to spiritually unhook. To spiritually unhook does not mean we go numb and dull and don't see or experience. It means that we see and experience from a very different state of awareness and consciousness. And this unhooking is incredibly powerful and incredibly freeing. It is the means by which we are able to more easily move through our lives with ease and grace. With whatever it is that arising, it, it, whatever it is that is arising, Pema writes about this from the Buddhist point of view, and the Buddhists call this experience heightened neuroses. They describe a phenomenon that happens as we go more deeply into our spiritual practice. Certain things happen, and if we don't know how to name them, if we don't know what they are, we can stumble when they arise and somehow think that we are doing something wrong. She writes, we might assume that as we train, in other words, as we do our spiritual work, we might assume that as we train, our habitual patterns will start to unwind that day by day, month by month, we will be more open-minded and more flexible. That's reasonable to assume, right? I mean, why are we doing this? We're wanting a positive outcome, right? But what actually happens with ongoing practice is that at first our patterns intensify. It's not something we do on purpose, it just happens. Rather than becoming open-minded, more flexible, more loving through our spiritual practice, our old patterns seem to intensify, and we seem to wind up holding on tightly to our old habitual ways of being. As one gives up old ways of coping and looks more closely at disturbing emotions and habits, we begin to understand their hold and how they play out and their roots. This process brings a period of increased distress that Buddhists have long acknowledged and called heightened neuroses. I'm so glad there's a name for it. I'm so glad there's a name for it. And and when I became acquainted with this, it reminded me so very much of something that an old time unity author by the name of Emily Cady wrote in. Unity's basic textbook about 150 years ago, textbook called Less, one of our textbooks called Lessons in Truth. And she wrote a piece in a chapter called chemicalization. And in it, she basically is describing this phenomenon that in Buddhism is called heightened neuroses. She describes what happens when one first embarks on a study and practice of spiritual truth. The interesting thing is when that section of the book was first published, people got a little upset about it. And headquarters thought, oh my, this sounds so negative, And we don't do negativity in unity. I'm glad we've outgrown that. We don't sweep negativity under the carpet. We look at what is and learn how to be with it and deal with it. But anyway, they yanked it. Headquarters yanked the part I'm going to share with you now out of the book because they thought that it would be too negative for people or upsetting for people to know. And yet, the opposite is actually the case. We need to know. We need to know in our journey of awakening, what are the things that, that we might experience so that we can awaken. And eventually, Unity did put it back, much to their credit. So this is what Emily wrote about chemicalization. Bear with me that this is old-style language, Okay, So it's going to sound kind of clunky and odd, but the truth of it is still there. She wrote, suppose a man has lived in wrong thought and molded his body by wrong thought for years until he has become solidified in that wrong belief. You introduce the truth to him by strong denials and affirmations. That's a tool that we use in unity. The very newness of it, and because it is spiritual truth, creates in the first few days new hope, new joy, new health. After a little time, a sort of mental ferment or agitation starts to take place. One is apt to feel nervous and seared way down in the depths of himself. If he has ever been sick, he will begin to feel old, old diseases. If he has been morally bad, then old desires and habits will take possession of him with new force. If he has been holding denials and affirmations about business affairs until they have looked hopeful, all at once they will seem to collapse and seem darker and more hopeless than ever. All the new beliefs that lifted him into a new world for a few days seem failures, And he seems on the very edge of breaking up generally. If you've been there, you know what she's writing about. And if you didn't know that that's normal, and it is, you might very well give up. But she goes on and she writes, what has happened? Why simply this? There's been a clash. Between the old condition, which was based on falsehood, fear, and wrong ways of thinking, and the new thought of truth entering into you. Sidebar here, Jesus warned against don't put new wine into old wineskins because the old wineskins will burst because the new wine is needing more spaciousness, is going to expand and ferment. That's another whole lesson. But it's the same point. It's the same point. The old mortal is kicking vigorously against the truth. You have a feeling of discouragement or of fear, a feeling such as one would have if caught doing something disreputable. Do not be frightened. That which you feel is on the spiritual plane similar to the excitement and agitation to that which was seen in a chemical action between the alkali and acid on the material plane and something higher and better always results. That last part is the promise, and it is true. Something higher and better always results. But if we give up, if we don't know that this may be the experience we encounter in our journey of practicing, we may think that something is wrong and we may stop just before we begin to experience much greater growth and breakthrough. Pema suggests that this heightened neuroses can cause us to do one of three things. See if you can relate to any of these three. She says it can cause us to suddenly start to develop a new self critical storyline based on spiritual ideas. A new self-critical storyline based on spiritual ideas. We come up with all of these shoulds and we wind up saying to ourselves, well, I, it's just one more way that I get to feel insufficient, inadequate, I'm not measuring up, I'm just not making it. Can anybody relate to any part of that? Yes, so we can, it can show up in that way. Or, she says, a second way it can show up is exactly the opposite. We, through this heightened erosis, through our spiritual practice, we begin to feel the ego expands and we begin to to feel um, much better, much bigger, much grander than what we truly are. We are not being honest with ourselves. We use our practice to feel somehow special and different from everyone else. It always surprises me when people come to me and say, well, you know I'm enlightened. <laughs> I've, had, I've had all sorts of things said to me. I give thanks for my grandmother, Erna, who modeled for me the ability to, to just remain centered and gracious and try to keep some of the things off my face that are better kept off my face in moments like that. My personal experience is those who are truly enlightened and I do believe that I have had the honor and privilege to to be with just a few people that I would sincerely say are truly enlightened beings. They do not have to tell anybody that they are enlightened. (laughs) You just know they are enlightened. There is a transmission. There is a something. They do not go around saying, oh yes, I'm enlightened. I know all that. I'm enlightened. So she says that's one of the things that can happen to us in, the, in this journey. Or the other is this heightened neurosis surfaces in a way that we wind up avoiding and disconnecting. We use our spiritual practice to actually avoid dealing with the things that we need to deal with. Let me read to you an important piece that she writes about this. She suggests we use the teachings sometimes themselves to distance ourselves from the chaotic, unsettling quality of our lives in an attempt to avoid the fact that our partner is alcoholic or that we're addicted to marijuana or that we're in yet another abusive relationship We use our spiritual training to avoid the queasy feeling in our gut and dealing with what needs to be dealt with. So the process of awakening spiritually does not mean that we don't deal with our lives or that we don't feel our lives. We do deal with our lives and we do feel our lives. But it is done from a very different state of consciousness. It is done from a state in which we do not singularly ever identify with that which is arising. We can name it. Anger, fear, upset, joy, love, patience, faith. We can name it without being hooked by it. One of the recurring themes, and I want to begin to wind this lesson in this series down, but one of the the recurring themes that we have been working with is the importance of those individuals in our lives that help us to wake up. And Pema and others write quite a bit about how important it is that we have in our lives these others that help us awaken. We all have them, Have you noticed that the minute you put your foot on a spiritual path, you get so many opportunities to practice spiritually? And you may even notice that the moment you really earnestly embark on a spiritual journey, that you seem to have many more such people in your life than you ever had before. It's not uncommon an experience. We are meant, though, not to push them aside, but we are meant to understand the role that they play in our lives and in our quest to awaken and stay awake more consistently. In this room, we talk a lot, I talk a lot, about the sandpaper to our soul, people in our lives. Those people that just push our buttons, that rub us the wrong way, that are the people that really, when we understand it, are the very people by which we can learn to shine more brightly and let more of the the God presence within us shine through us. A few few weeks ago I shared with you one of Pema's stories about the um, Bengali tea boy and the the Tibetan master or the master who was leaving his country and going to the country of Tibet to teach but he knew that everybody in Tibet was loving and kind and patient and he was afraid that if he went there there would be nobody to perturb him. So he brought along with him his Bengali tea boy, the one who perturbed him the most so that he would stay awake, only to discover that there were people like that in Tibet too. He didn't need to bring his Bengali tea boy with him. <laughs> so we have our Bengali tea boys. You we may have a Bengali tea boy in your family, they usually do show up in our family for convenience so we don't have to go far to find somebody to help us wake up. The universe loves us so much they say, yeah, I'll put one in your family, maybe not too close to you, but close enough that you're going to be dealing with this person for for a while. And so here's yet one more version of that same, same idea of the usefulness. I like how Pema calls it the usefulness of these kinds of people in our lives to help us learn how to unhook to be able to name the feeling, name the experience, to let it arise without it singularly identifying us, to know that we are always more than that. So it's a story out of the life of the spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. And he was kind of a crazy wisdom character. And he had a community. He Part of his teaching, which he called the work, was to help people to stop being what he called waking or walking sleep. In other words, he wanted to help people awaken. And he would do things on purpose, crazy kinds of things in his community, to kind of be prickly and challenging to help people awaken. And on one such occasion, one of the um, experiences he was giving his his community was he wanted them to take out a full grassy area of, of lawn and to do it in small little sections and move it from one area of the property to another area just because it was the assignment he was going to give them to do. Well, the community didn't like it very much. But this was a community that was trying to practice patience and tolerance and understanding and being awake in the midst of whatever it is arising, whether what is arising is what you want or not, learning how to be with it. And there was one person in the community, though, that always drove everybody crazy. Nobody, no matter how hard they practiced, seemed to like this guy. And they couldn't wait for this guy to somehow just disappear. Well, this one activity of moving the grass from one spot to the other was enough to make that one guy that nobody liked disappear. He finally said, "Okay, I quit. I'm done. I'm out of here. And he left. When Gurdjieff heard about it, he followed him until he found him. And he brought him back to the community. And everybody was upset, they were so glad he was gone, now they were so upset because he was back. That evening, one of the people who would help prepare dinner for Gurdjieff said, why did you do that? Everyone was so glad to get rid of this person, why did you do that? And the story goes that Gurdjieff said, "Shh, you can't tell anybody, but I actually have paid him to be part of this community to do what he does. So I'm not suggesting that you love your Bengali T-boy so much that you pay him. But I am suggesting you don't fire him. I am suggesting you don't fire him. So in our journey to awaken, we truly get to look at all that arises in our life, including sandpaper to our soul or Bengali T-boy and so forth, as a means by which we can practice deeply and open up, become unhooked, and live from that place of awareness that our soul, the deepest part of our soul, absolutely longs to live from. I hope there's something, whether from this talk today or from your work with Pema's book, that lives in you and continues to support you and feed you in your spiritual journey. We need, each and every one of us, to continue to do this work and awaken as much as we possibly can. Namaste. Thanks for listening. Sunday services at 9 and 11 a.m. Inclusivity. It's worth the drive. Subscribe to our podcasts and download our free app for instant access to a wealth of spiritual teachings, services, and events.